Thanks for tuning in to the Heartland Message Podcast. Feel free to reach out with any questions and visit us online at weareheartland.us to find out more about all of our ministries and upcoming events. Thank you. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, maybe we just do that every week. I don't know, right? Oh, how to transition now to a teaching. Um, I want to begin with a quote. Uh, I want to begin with my favorite quote of all time, actually. It's a quote that uh, former President Theodore Roosevelt gave on April 23rd, 1910. Uh, Just one year prior, he had finished his second term as President of the United States. His son finished uh, high school, graduated from high school, and decided to take a gap year before he left for uh, Harvard. And so father and son decided to take this year together to explore the continent of Africa and then tack on a speaking uh, tour through Europe when it was over. It culminated with uh, Theodore Roosevelt accepting the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, this was 1910. It was just a few years away from the outbreak of World War I, which would eventually claim the lives of some 20-odd million people. And so tensions across Europe were rising at this point. One of the stops on the speaking tour was at the university in Paris, France, and there President Roosevelt gave a speech titled, Citizenship in a Republic. It was in this speech that he gives us the now famous quote that I love so much and that you're probably familiar with that so many people love today, where he said this about triumph, failure, and critics. He said, it is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself for a worthy cause, who knows at the best, in the end, the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. I love that quote, right? It's the type of quote that makes me want to get up and go lift weights or run a mile, you know, do the things that I generally spend most of my life trying to avoid doing. But I love this quote because it's the type of quote that inspires me. It's the type of quote that probably inspires you. President Roosevelt was not the last one to use it. In fact, several United States presidents, since he gave this this quote, have, have referenced it. World leaders and politicians from countries all across the globe have used it. Nelson Mandela shared this very quote with the leader, the captain of the South African rugby team before the 1955 Rugby World Cup when they went out and eventually defeated the heavily favored team from New Zealand. Musicians have written songs about this quote. Athletes like LeBron James are famous for writing man in the arena quotes on their shoes. Brene Brown referenced it in a now famous TED Talk. The United States Naval Academy requires every single cadet to memorize it. And even Cadillac has used it to sell more cars. I decided this week I'm going to start using it to motivate my kids after a big snowstorm. Remember, boys, it's not the critic who counts. It's the preteen in the driveway with the shovel. Now go get them. Right? We love these quotes. We love things that inspire us like that. This this is the type of quote that makes us want to go for it. It's the type of quote that makes us want to take the risk, to apply for the job, to enroll in the class, to start the company, to ask the girl out. 
Yes, she may say no, but quotes like this remind us that we'll live our rest of our lives just wondering what might have been if we had the courage to ask her. It's like that great country song that says, I should have asked her faster, but I waited too long, and in a red-hot minute like a flash, she was gone. I didn't get her number, I didn't get her name, and that's a real disaster. I should have asked her faster. There's so much wisdom in country music, isn't there? Yes. Ultimately, I think we would all agree with Roosevelt that the credit belongs not to the critic. The credit belongs to the person who is actually in the arena, the person who is actually going for it. And this is one of the things that I love so much about reading the Bible, because Scripture is filled with women and men who are in the arena, women and men who were actually going for it. Over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different individuals who were all man-in-the-arena type people. And since we're calling this series Heartland Late Night, the thread that will tie all of these stories together is that all three of the stories we're going to look at happened late at night. Today, we're going to begin by looking at one of Jesus' closest disciples, a man named Simon Peter. This is the same Simon Peter we talked about a few weeks ago, having breakfast on the beach with Jesus. But if you were here that week, you might remember that one of the things we skipped over was like this monumental man-in-the-arena type moment for Peter. And I want us to come back to this event in his life because I think it speaks so profoundly into all of our lives today. Whether you're in a season of your life that feels kind of tumultuous or crazy or exciting, or you feel like you're in a season of your life where you have settled into a rhythm, maybe it's even a mundane season of your life, or anywhere in between, I believe this experience that the Apostle Peter has speaks truth into your situation, and that's why I want us to look at it together. It's recorded by three of the four gospel writers, but we're going to dig into the passage from uh, Matthew's perspective and how he remembers it happening. It starts in Matthew chapter 14, so if you brought a Bible and you want to follow along on your own, go ahead and open it up to Matthew 14. We're going to pick up in chapter 14, verse 22. And before we get into it, what you need to know is what's happened just prior to this event. Just before this, Jesus has fed thousands of people miraculously with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then he told his disciples to go around and gather all the extras. So they walk through the crowd and they collect like 12 basketfuls of extra food that was left over having been multiplied by Jesus. The disciples are pumped in this moment. They are fired up, excited to see what Jesus is able to do. And at this point, they're willing to do pretty much anything he tells them to do, which is good because he's about to tell them to do something they probably did not want to do. Do very much. Okay, that's the backdrop. We're going to pick it up in verse 22, coming right off of this miraculous feeding, where we read, immediately then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. So Jesus finishes feeding these people, and he makes the disciples get in the boat, and he tells them that he wants them to go on ahead of him to the other side, implying, I'll meet you there. Now we read that, and we think, fair enough. The problem is, from the disciples' perspective, that would not have made any sense. Jesus, what do you mean go on ahead of you? How are you going to meet us there? Are you going to Wait till tomorrow and borrow somebody else's boat? I mean, whose boat are you going to take, Jesus? Are, like, you hoping that somebody will just show up with a boat and, and you'll be able to hitch a ride with them? Like, are you going to walk around the entire Sea of Galilee and we're just supposed to sail across now and then wait for you? What do you want us to do? This doesn't make any sense. And so I, gave, I brought a picture of the Sea of Galilee that I want to show you. 
To give you some idea of the scale of what we're talking about here when we say the Sea of Galilee, you can imagine off to the right how far this is. This is the, the Sea of Galilee, just so you know, is 64 square miles of water. By comparison, Lake Mendota, the biggest lake in our area, is 15. This one's 64 square miles. So this is not a tiny little sea, tiny little lake. This is a sea. And Jesus, it's late afternoon. It's early evening, like it's going to be dark very soon. Wouldn't it make more sense for us to just wait until the morning when we can see where we're going and then we can all sail together? But the disciples don't want to, you know, disobey Jesus after he's just miraculously fed all these people, so they do what they're told. Verse 24 says, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Okay, now it's getting late. Now it is evening. By this point, maybe it's completely dark out because the sun is setting or it has set. And what do you know? A storm blows in. Now, people who know the Sea of Galilee tell us that this is very commonplace on the Sea of Galilee. It is, it is a, because of where it's located and because of the, the setting around it, it is very normal for very sudden and violent storms to blow up and for the Sea of Galilee to be overwhelmed with huge waves. There's, there's cold air that comes over the eastern mountains, and it kind of, as it's cold air, it tries to settle on the lake. At the same time, warmer water kind of filled air is trying to rise, and that process of those two air masses fighting against each other creates these sudden violent waves and storms. If you've ever been on a boat in a big storm, you know what this is like. If you've ever even just been out on a really, you know, rough day, you know how the boat starts to do this, right? And you're going side to side. And it's okay at first, but then you start to feel sick to your stomach, and you're like, I don't think this is going to be okay. And some of you are starting to feel that way right now, just watching me do this, and you're like, could you stop, John? Yeah, I'll stop for you. But you can imagine what this must have been like for the disciples, right? This would be terrifying. It's now dark. There's this huge storm. They're going to be holding on for dear life. Verse 25 and 26 says, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. The Romans broke night into four time, time frames. It was 6 to 9 p.m., 9 p.m. to midnight, midnight to 3 a.m., and 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. We're told that this happens during the fourth watch of the night, which means the disciples have been out on the sea fighting the storm all night long. They had to be worn out. They had to be exhausted. They had to be hungry. They had to be thirsty. They had to be tired. They had to be wiping the, the drowsiness from their eyes, but they're still gripping onto the sides of the boat, hoping it doesn't capsize in this violent storm, in these huge waves, which was a very real possibility. Sometime around 3 a.m., one of the disciples sees something in the distance, and as they're holding on, and as the boat's rocking, as he's trying to make his, his eyes focus in the distance, he goes, you guys, do you see that? Do you, do you see what I see? What is that? And they all start to squint and look, and they're all, it's the water's rough, but, but somebody else might have said, yeah, I, I think I see it too. What is that? It's, it's like a, is that a man? There's a man walking on the lake. And then somebody else points out, he's coming straight at us. Are you kidding me? And these 12 guys freak out, as they should, right? 
This is just bonus material. But let me just tell you, if this summer you ever find yourself out on a boat in the middle of a sea late at night in a violent storm and you see a man walking on the water towards you, you should freak out. That's biblical. Like you should freak out, okay? This makes sense. Now, Jesus isn't trying to like, play a practical trick on them. So verse 27 says, but immediately Jesus said to them, hey, take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. Jesus isn't trying to scare them. So immediately he says, guys, hey, 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 relax, calm down, it's me. Like, like hey, you're okay, it's me, it's Jesus. Now, that's nice of Jesus to tell them they don't need to be afraid in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, when they're almost ready to be dead, like, and they see a man walking on the water. But they still, they freak out. And that's, that's fair. That is a completely rational response. What's not a completely rational response is what Peter decides to do next. Verse 28 tells us that Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, and he thinks to himself, huh, if that's really Jesus, if he really has power and authority over the elements of nature, he could give it to me as well. Jesus, tell me to come to you out on the water. Now notice that Peter asked the question, and then he waits for the answer from Jesus. This is not a story about taking risks with your life simply to take risks. Ultimately, this is a story about obedience. Peter did not simply need courage. He also needed wisdom and discernment as well to know if God was calling him to take a step out of the boat. Verse 29, Jesus responds and simply says, come. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. Quick show of hands. How many of you have ever read or heard about this story in the Bible before? Just hands up if you've ever heard or read. Yep, okay, so almost everybody in the room has, is familiar with this passage. The problem with, with reading a passage of Scripture like this that we're so familiar with is that when you, we read it, it's kind of like we read it, we're at home, and it's, it's almost like we're in the lazy boy, and we're just yawning as we read it, right? You just, you read it, and you're like, oh, oh man, that's nice. He walked on water. Hey, honey, did you hear that? Peter walked on water. Oh, that's nice, honey. Yeah, Peter walking on water. That's great, right? But Peter walked on water. How many times have you heard of someone walking on water? I read that, and I'm like, did I read that right? Peter walked on water? Not just Jesus. Peter walked on water? This is verse 29. Peter got out of the boat, walked on water. I'm like, maybe my Bible is wrong. Maybe I, maybe I got like a bad translation. Anybody else have a Bible open in the room right now that you can look at your 29? Anybody? Nobody in the room have a Bible? Okay, we got one. Does yours say that Peter walked on water too? Yes, Peter walked on water. What? Are you kidding me? Peter walked on water, and not the way that nerds like me do it, right? Every summer when we're at the pool with my kids, I always splash a little water up on the sidewalk, and I'm like, hey, kids, look at Daddy. I'm walking on the water. You know, they love it. They just, they fall over laughing. It never gets old to them. They really, they love it. No, I'm kidding. But, the, but just imagine this, right? The waves are huge. The boat has been buffeted by the wind. They see the shadow in the distance. Turns out it's Jesus. But they are freaked out. Peter decides to take this as an opportunity to see if he can do a little water walking too. Jesus gives him the green light. And so when every fiber in his being must have been screaming, don't do it, Peter. Stay in the boat, Peter. Peter 
does not listen to that voice, and instead he swings one foot out after another, and he takes a step on the water. This was a man-in-the-arena-type moment for Peter. I have no doubt this must have been incredibly invigorating. I have no doubt that this was the thrill of a lifetime. This was the type of thing he would remember for the rest of his life, the type of story that he would tell to his children and his children's children if he had grandchildren. This was the type of experience that people would ask him about for the rest of his life. Hey, you're Simon Peter, like the Simon Peter? Did you really walk on water with Jesus? What was that like when you stepped out of the boat and you took your first steps on the water? I'll tell you, just ahead of time, where we're going with all of this. In case you have to leave early today, I want you to know kind of what the summary statement of today is going to be. It's actually a line that I'm going to steal from a book uh, when I first got started in ministry. I've never read the book. I probably should have read the book by now. I probably should have read the book this week. But when, when I first got started in ministry, a book came out, and uh, just the title was so good. It inspired me and has had a significant impact on my life. And the title of the book is the summary for where we're going with this today. The summary statement is simply this. If you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. That's where we're going to go with this. That's where I want us to lead into. This is what I want us to think about. Simply the truth that if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. Now we'll come back to that in a little bit. First, let's finish the story. Verse 29 says, then Peter got out of the boat, walked on water, and came towards Jesus. Verse 30 says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. This is the, the, the moment of a lifetime. For a moment, Peter has all the faith and courage in the world. Jesus has just told them not to be afraid, and so Peter wasn't afraid. Peter asked if he could come out on the water, and Jesus told him to come. So without thinking, Peter obeys. He climbs out of the boat and begins walking on water. For a moment, it was amazing. For a moment, it was faith fulfilled, but then something happens. Then we're told that Peter pauses and that Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus it dawns on him how unlikely this is to happen, and we're told that he saw the wind. That is such an interesting statement, that he saw the wind, because you don't see the wind. Why does it say he saw the wind? Because he saw the effects of the wind. He saw what was natural. He saw what was physical. He saw what was in front of him. He saw the waves that were washing up, maybe around his knees. He saw the boat, which was still rocking. He saw the faces on the other 11 disciples who were terrified and didn't understand what was happening. He heard the sound of the water slamming against the boat or the boat slamming back down on the water as it came down from a wave. And when this happens, when Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink in the sea and it terrifies him. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that where you begin to sink in the water and you know how terrifying that is, how that fear grips your heart. I had an experience like that once where I feel like that had to be exactly what the Apostle Peter was feeling in this moment. I'm not a big swimmer, you know, by nature. It's not like I go swim laps for fun or anything like that, you know. I like to splash around in like the shallow end of the pool with my kids about once a summer just to say I did it. And, uh, but that's about it for me. Well, when I was dating my wife back in college, uh, one of the first things that I found out about her family was that they loved to deep sea fish down in the Gulf of Mexico. 
And so her dad had a boat, and they used to go deep-sea fishing all the time, and kind of like the big game was, was fishing for blue marlin out, like, far away in the uh, Gulf. And I actually asked my father-in-law yesterday, I said, hey, how far out did we used to go fishing in the Gulf of Mexico? And he wrote back, and he said, usually about 100 miles. So we'd be 100 miles away from shore. And this one time, we were out fishing for marlin about 100 miles off the coast, and uh, we're out in the Gulf of Mexico, and, I, um, and we hooked up a marlin. And so Ashley's brothers and Ashley's dad and Ashley had all caught marlin in the past. So they said, hey, John, do you want to bring this one in? And I was like, sure, you know, let's do it. Why not? I didn't know what I was doing. The biggest fish I'd ever caught up to this was a bluegill. And um, so I was like, yeah. So immediately they start putting this contraption on me and like clamping it down and buckling it together like this big heavy vest thing. And then they bring this pole over to me. The reel was like this big. And they clip it to the vest, meaning they clip the pole to me. And I was like, what are you doing? And then they're doing something behind me. And then they clipped the back of the vest to the boat. And they said, we have to clip the pole to you and you to the boat because if we don't, the marlin will pull you overboard. And sometimes they get angry and they turn around and they spear the person fishing. So I was like, what are you I mean... You do like a discount double check back there, okay? And uh, so I go to work bringing this, this fish in, this, this marlin in. And I, you know, you've seen how you do it on TV. Like you got to lean way back, which like kills your back. But then it creates a little slack. And as you come forward, you reel it in. And so I'm just doing this for like 45 minutes. I would bring some line in only to have the marlin get angry and turn around and take line back out. And it goes, you know, I'm going, oh my gosh. And 45 minutes later, I am just drenched head to toe in sweat. It's so hot. It's the middle of the summer. We're out in the hot sun. My hand is now bloody from the blisters that have popped as I'm trying to crank this thing against the strength of this, this marlin. And eventually we get the fish in the boat. Now, some of you thought this was a joke and like, I wasn't going to, you know, I, I didn't really catch the fish. I did. We have a picture of it. And uh, so this is the marlin. And so you can see how big that is. Like when I tell people I caught a fish this big, I really did catch a fish this big. And uh, so then we let it go after we got the picture of it and we put it back and it swam away and it probably, you know, I don't know, speared somebody else. But anyway, once we were done, they take the vest off me and then her brothers surround me. And I was like, what are you doing? And they said, it's tradition that whenever you catch your first marlin, you have to be thrown in after it. And so, you know, I, at first I was like, okay, well, that's fine. I'm like so hot. This is going to feel good. Like, go for it. So they pick me up and they throw me off the boat into the water. And so I'm just treading water out there in the middle of the Gulf. And this is a picture of me while I'm happy about it. And uh, then I asked my father-in-law, I said, hey, how deep is the water here? And he goes over to the gauges and he looks and he says, it's right about one mile, about 5,000 feet deep here. And suddenly I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I can picture Moby Dick coming up underneath me, right? This is a sharks and whales and my hand's bleeding. So they're cir like circling, right? And so there is like panic that sets in, in a deep, deep way. And suddenly I swim as fast as I can back to the boat. And I have never been so excited to see my father-in-law's hands reach down and pull me up out of the water. I have to imagine this is what Peter feels like in this moment. At first he's good, but then he takes his eyes off of Jesus and when he starts to sink, he starts to panic and he cries out for help. Verse 31 says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? 
Why did you doubt, Peter? Come on, man. Haven't you been around long enough to know this? Like, this is one of Jesus' favorite lines with Peter. Peter would get afraid of something. He would face some scary situation. God would come through. And then Jesus would always ask Peter, I think with a smile on his face, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why didn't you believe? That would happen again and again and again until after the resurrection, Peter finally got it and he would never doubt again that God is in control and that God can be trusted with your life. Verse 32 says, when they climbed into the boat, so Jesus pulls them back up, they walk back to the boat, they climb in, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. It was a night that I have no doubt any of them would ever forget. Just like none of us would have ever forgotten it if it had been us there, if we had been the one to walk on water. And here's the thing. Here's the reason that I wanted us to look at this passage together this weekend. Because I believe that you were designed to walk on water too. I believe that you have been called out onto the water. I believe that you have been called and designed to walk on water. I believe that there is something inside of you that longs to walk on water. I believe there is something inside of you that longs to not just experience the normal and the mundane from the beginning of your life to the very end. There is something inside of each and every one of us that longs to have the adventure of following God, of trusting him, of taking steps of faith, of doing a little water walking ourselves. And I believe that that desire inside each and every one of us was not put there by us, by choice. It was put there by our creator, by our heavenly father on purpose because he longs for you to walk on water as well. And there will always be a part of you that wants to play it safe. There will always be a part of you that is tempted to hunker down and hold on to the sides of the boat, gripped with fear. But you know when you are your truest self, when you are not held back by fear or worry or anxiety or doubt or anything else, you know that there is a part of you that wants to experience the thrill of walking on water. And I'm here to remind you that that is good because that is who God has called and created you to be. You have been designed to walk on water. And so the question this morning as we try to apply that truth to our lives is really just pretty simple. I've got two questions that I want to give you this morning. Two things that I'd love for you to ask yourself this week, because you're probably not going to know the answer to it right off the bat here in this room, in this space, in this moment. But this week, carve out some time to think through these two questions. The first one is simply this. What would it look like for you to walk on water? What would it look like for you to walk on water? It's so easy to look around at other people and to think they were created to walk on water. To look at him and say, well, he was created to walk on water. To look at her and to say, well, clearly she was created to walk on water. To look at their personality and say, based on their personality, of course, they were designed to walk on water. But that's not me. That is not true. That is a lie. Every single one of you were designed and called and created to do a little water walking. It will just look different for you than then it will look for them. It will look different in your life walking on water than it looks like for him, than it looks like for her, than it looks like for them. God has created you and he has called you and he has a plan for you that is unique to you. 
Walking on water for you will be unique to your season of life. It will be unique to you based on your life experiences. It will be unique to you based on how you have grown and what you have experienced in the past. It will be unique to you based on your passions and your giftings and your talents and your calling. But the question is, what does it look like for you? If you were to answer that question, what would it look like for me to walk on water? How would you answer that question? It could be something big. It could be something more simple. It does not have to be news-level worthy events. It can be something that, 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 that nobody else even knows about. It's between you and God. But what would it look like for you to ask God, Jesus, do you want me to come? And when he says come, for you to obey, what would water walking look like for you? For me in my life, there have been so many times where I have experienced this, and sometimes I've said yes, and I've gotten to experience the thrill of walking on waters. There have been times when, when I've said no, and I know that I've missed out in hindsight on the thrill that God wanted for me to have. If you ask me what, what would be the, the, the time that you're the most grateful for, the most, most um, yeah, just grateful that you said yes to it, it would be this. It would be all of us together right here in this place. 12 years ago, I was on staff at a church in Rockford, Illinois, and I was good. Everything was good, but I heard about this thing that was maybe coming together up in Sun Prairie and maybe some churches getting combined and starting fresh and beginning a new one and planting a church, and it was very unique, and there was something inside of me that knew I wanted to be a part of it, but I didn't know in what way. I didn't know in what role, and so I just asked God. I said, God, if you want me to come, will you make it clear to me? Will you make it clear what role I'm supposed to play? And so I prayed that prayer, and then the next day, my boss called me into his office, and he said, listen, as I've been thinking about this and praying about this, I think that you should be involved. And I was like, yep, yep, I'm with you. He kept going, and I'm like, yep, I'm with you. And then he said, and I think you're the person to lead the whole thing. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? You know, like, did I hear that correct? I was instantly terrified. I mean, I was like paralyzed with fear. I was 25 years old. I had never led anything in my life, let alone a church plant. I had never preached. I had not gone to seminary. I was a huge introvert, terrified of public speaking. My wife and I had just bought our first house in Rockford, Illinois. We had just had our first child, who was not an easy baby. We were surrounded by great friends and deep family relationships in Rockford. I loved what I was doing there, and I had never even been in the state of Wisconsin before. True story. Everything in me screamed, stay in the boat. What are you doing? Hunker down. Hold on to the sides. Don't step out onto the water. But I knew that God was inviting me to come. And so I put one foot in front of the other. And now I look back and I think, I can't imagine what I would have missed being a part of this, being a part of what we have created together if I hadn't had the courage to say yes to when Jesus called me out onto the water. I'm so grateful for that experience now. But you have to understand, I was paralyzed with fear. And there were times, just like Peter, when I took my eyes off of Jesus and I saw the wind, except in my case I didn't see the wind, I heard the voice of the critics, of which there were many in the early days, and I listened to the critics instead of listening to Jesus, and when I did, I started to sink. And there were so many times when I tried to quit, there were probably 50 times I told my wife, I'm done, I'm gonna resign tomorrow, let somebody else do it, it's not me, I can't do it. And she would encourage me, she'd say, John, do you feel like God has invited you to step out onto the water in this? And I'd say, yes, and then she'd say, are you really gonna go back to the boat? 
And now, again, I'm just, I'm so grateful that I didn't. But that was the big one, right? There have been so many smaller times that, that maybe something that God's inviting you to do to step out on the water. Maybe it's not a new career. Maybe it's not moving across the country. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's what is it for you? Maybe it's, maybe it's running for public office. God help you if that's the case, right? Um, but, but what is it for you? It could be big. It could be simpler. The first question is, what would it look like for you to walk on water? The second question is simply, what would it look like for you to get out of the boat? As I said earlier, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. So the second question is this, simply, what would it look like for you to get out of the boat? What does that first step look like? Faith is simply taking the next step. You don't have to worry about taking the entire journey in the first leap, right? Faith is just taking the first step. At the Men's No Regrets Conference a couple weeks ago, I sat in on a breakout session given by Pastor Jeff Mannion based around his book, Dream Big, Think Small. And his point was that while we all hear about the so-called overnight success, which really is a facade that's never true, that's what we all want to be true of our life. His point was that it's actually the little things that we do day in and day out consistently over time that allow us to become the women and men that we want to be and allow us to make the type of impact that we want to make. So the question for you to process this week is simply, what would it look like for you to get out of the boat? Maybe this is the season for you to enroll in the class, to sign up for the course. Maybe this is the season for you to meet with the attorney and file the paperwork to set up that 501c3 nonprofit you've been dreaming about. Maybe this is the time when you need to say yes to that opportunity that has come your way. Maybe this is the season where it's time to pick up the phone and make the call. Maybe this is the time when you need to sit down and force yourself to write chapter one of your new book. But what is it for you? What would it look like for you to get out of the boat? Let me leave you with this. You will always be tempted to hunker down and stay in the boat. You will always be tempted. There will always be a part of you that is tempted to play it safe. But just think about the other 11 disciples. There were 11 more guys in the boat that day with Peter. And I believe that every single one of them had the same opportunity that the apostle Peter had. Any of them could have said, Jesus, hey, call me out too. When they saw Peter walking on the water, they could have been like, hey, Jesus, me too, right? Where was John? Why didn't John jump out there? I don't know. Maybe they were afraid and they were playing it safe. And I suppose they were safe, but they also missed out on the opportunity to walk on the water. Don't be the people who stay in the boat. Take a step of faith. When God calls you and when he invites you to step out, say yes and go for it. I love, as we wrap this up, and we'll invite the band back out. I love that when Jesus and Peter got back into the boat, we're told that the disciples simply worshiped him. They said, truly, you are the son of God. And they responded by worshiping him. Jesus didn't ask them to worship him. Nobody said that they had to worship him. They simply saw Jesus for who he really is, and they naturally, automatically responded in worship. And as we bring our time to a close together this morning, We want to close by doing the same thing, giving ourselves the opportunity to see Jesus for who he really is. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the one who has the power and authority over all of the elements of this universe, and he is the one who is sovereign over every detail of our lives. 
And this morning, we have the privilege and the opportunity as we are gathered together with each other in his presence on a snowy Sunday morning, we get to lift up his name as we worship him for who he really is. Thank God we're not in a rocky boat. We're in a hot room on comfortable chairs. But today, we get to worship him. So let's do it from a place of authentic faith, knowing that he invites each and every one of us out onto the water. Let me pray for you, and then we'll do that. Lord, thank you for this passage of scripture and the reminder that we have all been invited to walk on water. Lord, would you help us to have the faith and the courage to say yes to the invitation, and as a result, would our lives be glorifying to you and liberating to people around us. It's in your son's name that we pray, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Thanks for listening to this Heartland message. Join us on the weekends for one of our services on Saturdays at 4.30 and on Sundays at 9 and 10.45 a.m.